Are we really trained as physical therapists to improve quality of life and participation? In clinic measures are a snapshot of the person's behavior. What we really would like is a, is a movie. Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Hi, I'm Katie McGraw, former chair of the DDSIG and member of the 4D podcast team. We are doing something a little different with this podcast. The team wanted to be true to our name and do a deep dive on one topic, but talk to a few different experts. In order to do this, we reached out to Dr. George Folk, professor at SUNY Upstate Medical University and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Neurologic Physical Therapy. George suggested we look at the topic of participation and how we can really evaluate, quantify, and impact participation with our patients. We were psyched, and so here it goes. I'm here with Parm Paget, Secretary of the DDSIG, and our podcast host to start our discussion of participation. Great. Well, Katie, I think this is a great topic. Um, you know, we know that participation is important. It's part of the ICF. And so I was excited to hear that George brought that to our attention. And, you know, I think it's something that we should think about and care about. But the reality is in a busy clinical environment where you're collecting certain outcome measures and really addressing people's problems and impairments, it's kind of easy to lose sight of participation, at least for me. I totally agree. I think it's really hard to know how to measure participation and to remember to measure participation, you know, particularly when and if it's not part of your regular evaluation or workflow, you know, as you're trying to address other issues and reasons that the patients are coming in for therapy. And so, Katie, what are you doing to measure participation? No, it's a good question. I don't think I'm doing it very well. If I do measure it, it's similar to you, where it's more of a quality of life measure, you know, specific within Parkinson's, you know, I use the PDQ39 a lot. It does kind of draw out functional participation level limitations that may not come out with something standardized that we're using, like a six-minute walk test or the timed up and go, right? They may not necessarily make the link that, oh, I do feel slower out in the community or I have a hard time keeping up. Mm -hmm. So I think trying to define what we're talking about when we're talking about participation is a great idea. To tackle the definition of participation, we asked George Folk for his expertise and understanding. I don't know if there actually is any like holy grail of what is participation, right? So I think that it's going to be multiple avenues that are helping us get a picture of the participation, right? There's not going to be, there's not going to be any one measure, but it's going to be a combination of multiple measures that would give us some idea of what that participation is, right? So it's going to be self-report along with activity monitors, including GPS and including, um, clinic-based measures, right? So I think it's going to kind of be some combination of all those things. Using GPS to measure participation was a new idea for us. And so we were curious about how George started going down the path of using GPS to track participation in patients. 
I initially got some of these ideas actually from reading uh, papers about uh, endangered species. So they actually have, you know, because, you know, for example, you can go online and watch where some sharks are swimming in the ocean, right? So they actually have these GPS and activity monitors paired together on for, I first started reading it with snow leopards actually. Um, and looking at their habitat. And so then they can infer, you know, is this a, a eating location, feeding and hunting versus a travel location based on the behavior paired with the GPS. Um, and so I think in, in, I, I think they're also using this. I've seen some studies and and people who are beasts of looking at their community access and healthy people. So I think um, we're kind of it's still in the very early stages, but I think it's already being used with some different uh, patient populations as well as other types of populations. There. So I think in my mind, another logical next step of using different technologies to help us start to measure participation is combining these activity monitors with global positioning devices. We also started wondering who else is doing this type of work? Are there others using GPS and neurodegenerative diseases? So, um, you know, I've collaborated in the past with Lee uh, Dibble, who's at the university of Utah. He's done a tremendous amount of research um, in people with Parkinson's disease and you know, how can we help them become more active? How can we, how can physical therapists better prescribe exercise for people with Parkinson's disease? He's also, you know, done some similar work in people with MS. And so recently, actually back at CSM, when we were in person back at Denver, we were talking about this issue around participation. And he um, had used um, Garmin, GPS watches as a way to measure activity levels and steps, but also have the GPS data from those active from those garment watches in people with MS. So we got to think about how can we analyze those. Um, he's looked into, and again, I think we're both starting in this area, so don't have a lot of things published already. Um, but of using different uh, machine learning techniques to kind of analyze the GPS pattern. So again, you don't actually have to look at the actual GPS data, but can use these different cluster analysis techniques to identify, you know, how many clusters or how many locations does this person go to outside their home? Um, and so we talked about this, you know, some of the similar issues that, that we were discussing earlier around, you know, this is one more piece of the puzzle to help us get a, maybe a little bit better handle on that participation piece of being able to get outside the home. Given that George has been partnering with Dr. Lee Dibble, professor at the University of Utah, we thought it'd be great to bring Lee into the conversation and talk to them both about how they are examining participation. We started by asking Lee for his definition of participation. I would define participation as being able to go to church or to the grocery store or some other place that's meaningful for their life. And yes, we capture their ambulatory activity, uh, but you have no sense of if that was really meaningful to them, right? 
I don't think we're ever going to get away from needing self-report. So if we were to use the, like, as we have the ambulatory activity monitor, all that's capturing is their seven-day walking without any context for what they're doing. For example, the uh, using an ambulatory activity monitor, uh, like a, a step activity monitor, or a more commercially available kind of uh, contemporary monitor like a Fitbit or a Garmin that may have limitations in its accuracy relative to a research-grade monitor, but still it's tracking uh, some multi-day or multi-hour at the very least uh, monitoring a person's uh, walking behaviors. So you get some steps. You may be able to get uh, metrics about the intensity of the walking. You may be able to get uh, a sense of how much time they spent inactive versus active, depending on the monitor. It could be uh, if they're sitting or lying down. Uh, I mean, there's strengths and weaknesses of all those monitors, but I think the goal is to try to get prolonged measurement of people's activity as opposed to just trusting a snapshot within the clinic. I mean, the analogy that we've used previously is that in-clinic measures are a snapshot of the person's behavior. What we really would like is a, is a movie to, to see how that changes over time uh, or multiple days to get a better sense of the capability that that person might have. One of my frustrations has always been that we've done a good job and, uh, of we being kind of collectively people using some of these monitors of characterizing the differences between people with mobility challenges, whether that's Parkinson's MS or stroke or other things, and people without mobility challenges, neurotypical individuals. I have not seen many, if any, studies that have tried to use those as outcome measures to see if we can actually impact that on a kind of community level. Does that stroke rehabilitation program improve that person's ability to accumulate steps over a seven-day period? Does my Parkinson's strengthening program allow uh, those individuals with Parkinson's disease to walk uh, more freely and accumulate more steps, more high-intensity high minutes, um, and be less, uh, spend less period of time inactive? I can tell you the answer to that second question is no. That doesn't necessarily equate to participation, though, right? Like, they could be participating all that they want to in life and the community pre your, your intervention and post your intervention. So they might objectively be better on say the five times sit the stand or the 30 second chair stand, but, but maybe they're already participating at a level that they want to be participating. And so it's not sensitive to that because they're not changing their behavior. Right. You need some kind of self-report measure because if that person is not being able to go to church, the microbrewery, the, the grocery store, the places that they would like to go, and they're not accumulating uh, a adequate, what we'd consider an adequate number of steps from a public health standpoint and, and kind of physical activity standpoint, then those together would suggest that they're not participating in the community the way they would like to. And collectively, if we could get self-report and 
metrics of their ambulatory activity, if both of those improved as a result of your intervention, wouldn't that be a stronger kind of case for that was a really meaningful intervention for that individual? I think, you know, Lee raised two good important points previously is that the nice thing about some of these activity monitors, whether you combine with GPS or on their own, um, is that they allow us to look at what Lee quanti- like mentioned as a movie. So instead of like most of our outcome measures, either the self-report or clinic-based ones are just looking at a snapshot, like a picture at one point in time. But with the activity monitors, we can get a little bit better idea of what's ha- happening over a period of time, right? So maybe they just had a really good day or maybe had a really bad day. But with if we're able to monitor over a period of time, we can get a better idea of is this truly impacting their participation or uh, stepping activity levels across a longer period of time. I mean, there's been some studies that have looked at like how many days you need to measure and use an activity monitor to have less variance and more consistency. And it really depends on the study and the population anywhere from three to 14 days from different stuff that I've read. Um, but I think that's kind of a key thing to, to keep in mind of you know, how we want to progress in terms of measuring different things and particularly measuring participation because, right, one day you might go to church, but you don't go the next day. And you know what I mean? And so you want to try to, I think that's why combining the different measures helps us get a better overall picture. How would you guys define participation in relation to quality of life? Are they similar? Uh, Lee, I think that that's a very provocative question. For some people, I think it's, it is the same. You know, participation does improve their quality of life. But for some people, they don't, maybe they don't need that participation the way that we would define it or anybody else would define it, you know, that they have a, a really good quality of life. So, you know, I love, I, I agree that we need to look at multiple different measurements and including quality of life. But it's interesting to think about on the ICF model where participation is fairly heavily weighed. I think that, you know, I can think of patients that I have that are, say, dead bound that will tell you that they have a good quality of life. But really, they're not participating that much in the world around them, but they're, you know, they're doing the, they're doing some things that are meaningful for them. So I think it's, I think it's a great question. And I I think we need to be individualized when we work with our patients. And the reason I was asking was something you had said in kind of your preparation material was talking about the PDQ 39 the Parkinson's disease questionnaire 39 as a measure of participation. And I think there's probably components of it that may get to that, but I consider it more of a quality of life measure. Um, but equally as frustrating, I think for, for people that are trying to provide rehabilitation and document the benefits of rehabilitation, we and others have found that the PDQ 39 is stubbornly resistant to change. Even if you change 
the ability of the person to walk faster and have, have more strength, then maybe their disease severity is less as measured by the Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale. Their, uh, their PDQ39, that kind of self-report quality of life met- metric, remains stubbornly uh, fixated on a particular spot. I think we're limited and focused on the kind of mobility-related aspects of, of measuring participation that we can successfully use a step activity monitor, or we could use some wearable inertial measurement units, or we're dabbling with uh, trying to use GPS. But those are very kind of focused on the kind of spatial aspects and performance-based aspects of of participation, not the context or the meaning that the person might have for those mobility-related features. Well, and I think what I've, I have noticed the same thing anecdotally. What I've noticed is that it really, I think that there's a layer of psychological aspect to it, like the apathy, the depression. You know, when that stuff is up in play, then that self-report is tough, right? It's not really necessarily indicative of their physical ability or, or even what they can do. And sometimes I think even what they actually do just using quality of life, tricky, but for so many of us as clinicians, that's what we're using as a proxy for participation. You know, whether it's something like the PDQ 39, PDQ eight, even like, you know, the um, ABC, I just think using quality of life measures to and considering that as participation, which a lot of clinicians kind of do because it's all we have, is fraught. But even to get more provocative would be to think about, like, are we really trained as physical therapists to improve quality of life and participation, right? We're so focused, you know, as a faculty member in, in, in entry-level programs, that, you know, PT is really focused on improving impairments and potentially activity, right? Um, Or we hope it leads over to improving activity. And can we really expect there? So Lee's saying, you know, in a lot of his studies and people with Parkinson's, PDQ39 is not changing, but are they really directing their intervention at that component? You know, and I would argue probably not. So to summarize, Lee and George are really questioning the constructs of self-reported measures and their ability to be a measure for participation. Given this question and the likelihood that, at least with some individuals, we are probably not measuring participation when we administer self-reported outcome measures, we asked George and Lee for more specifics on their studies. You know, we have a study that's ongoing now, a pilot study where we're Um, trying to collect some of these data so that we have a combination of activity data and GPS data with self-report with clinic-based outcome measures to start to look at can we, how do we do some of these things? So how do we quantify, you know, some of this information? Like how many times do they leave a house? What's the distance 
how much time did they spend out of the house versus in the house? What were their behaviors in terms of mobility behaviors in the house versus out of the house and try to look at, um, you know, how much time was sitting in the house versus out of the house and things like that. So we're just starting to collect that data. And I'm also fortunate to work with some smart mathematicians that have good ways to look at analyzing that data, but then also keeping, trying to keep when we're figuring this out to keep some of that information anonymized, right? So that we don't know specifically where they went, but we know the type of location where they went from the GPS. Um, so that's kind of what we're working on now. So, so what clinic measurements are you using in conjunction with this GPS data? We're just kind of casting a wide net at this point, right? Because we want to see what might be useful and what's not. So we're doing everything from walking measures, gait speed, six minute walk test, uh, balance measures, so functional gait assessment, bird balance scale. So, you know, some lower level functioning, some higher level functioning, um, motor function. So like with stroke, just the fulomire. So some impairment based measures um, and then some self-report like stroke impact scale, um, the ABC to again, look at how do those three or four different aspects of measurement can we combine those to kind of help us better understand that bigger picture? Because again, going back to what we talked about at the very beginning, I don't think there's going to be any one measure that's going to be some holy grail. It's going to be a combination of these things. And, and probably as PTs, at least me, I'm a little bit biased towards measuring the mobility and activity aspect of things. But I think it's important to step back and try to look at more than just that. And hopefully we can do that with all these different measures. Well, I think that that's another big point is like how much can clinicians really take in and integrate and what kind of interface do you then need with the clinician? Like, you know, to George's point, like part of it is an, a non, you know, being anonymous about where you are, but part of it is also like, I can't even handle that information for all my patients. I just want to know, like, you know, they were, they were out in the community for X number of minutes in the last week and, or, you know, sitting at home for, the majority of the time, or like whatever it is, like it has to be fairly gross, I would think, information to be really useful and integrated in a clinical manner. So I, I, we have a long, I think there's a long way to go before we get there. But um, yeah, like what's important out of all that information is pulling, you know, I think that's even true when we look at the stepping data, right? So is it really the number of steps per day? Is that what's most important? Or is it the number of bouts that you take? Or is it the cadence that you're walking when you're taking those steps, right? So I think even with those, we're not sure what is the most important information or maybe it varies from person to person as well. I don't know if any of you guys have a Garmin. So what this Garmin does is it gives you a daily goal of step count it decides your daily goal based on what you've been doing. I actually think that there's something good about this, the fact that it's moving my target because what I learned is that, holy cow, in the last, you know, five days or whatever, I haven't been doing enough. Like now I need to go for a long run or I need to walk 
to and from work or, you know, whatever it is to get my steps back up. So it's interesting and sort of there's a psychological piece to it. I was just going to say that could lead to your next podcast is that we need to partner with psychologists really to better understand behavior change. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's the big thing, right? And so how do we actually support people to change their behaviors and not be a sedentary. And so I think you, you know, look at some of the literature with smoking cessation, weight loss, um, and how can we apply some of those principles to improve activity? In addition to Lee, George suggested we talk to Dr. Lori King, professor and researcher at Oregon Health Science University and co-director of the Balanced Disorders Lab. Hey, Lori. So we've been talking to Lee Dibble and George Folk um, in order to try to answer the question of how PTs can measure participation in the clinic. And they had some very unique ideas, but they also said that you were doing a lot of work in this area. So we'd love to hear from you about what are the types of things that you're looking into or tools that you're using? We are, yes. Our lab has been interested in measuring activity at home for a number of years. Um, and it's kind of interesting because we started doing this like a decade ago um, on some level. Um, but the recent COVID restrictions have really ramped up what we're trying to do with home monitoring because our lab's been closed. So um, it's kind of interestingly, like we have been working on this for several, many years and it's kind of, um, it's been fortuitous that we had this to implement into our studies Uh, Probably just in thinking about sort of the the history of what we've been doing with these types of home measures. Um, I mean, in in many other disciplines, it's it's known that people perform differently when they come into the clinic or into your lab than they do at home. And so we, our lab published a paper and I think it was 2011 or 12 showing that if you did the timed up and go in the lab versus the timed up and go in their home, you got really different metrics. So things were slower at home. So their walking was slower, their turning was slower, their arm swing was less. Um, So that was one of the original papers for our group anyways, where we started getting really interested in in, um, home home monitoring. And really when you think about falls, most falls occur in the home. And yet we really as physical therapists have very little idea of how people are functioning at home. So that's one of the reasons we're really interested in, in doing this home measuring. We have a lot of studies going across populations. So we have um, mild traumatic brain injury, Parkinson's, MS, aging. Um, and so we're, we're starting to look at people's function at home across populations. And what we've seen at this point is um, that with the Parkinson's, um, Parkinson's patients and the mild traumatic brain injury patients, there, when you looked at the measures, um, when you looked at sort of quality versus quantity, so not just like how active are you at home, but like how are your, what's your variability like in your movement? How are you turning at home? And these types of things. We found that in the Parkinson's population and the TBI, that their activity measures, so their sort of quantity of moving, it was the same as healthy controls. But it was only when you started to look at the turns and the turn angles and variability that you got a differentiation between groups. But then uh, there was another paper that came out um, on MS recently, just looking at that same concept. And they found the opposite. They found that activity measures in people with MS were better at discriminating 
from controls compared to um, the measures of like quality. And so it's, it seems to be disease specific, which is really interesting. And, but it just goes to show you that, you, you know, depending on the population you're looking at, you may need to be looking at different measures of how people are functioning at home. So um, that's, kind of, that's kind of what we're doing at this point, or that's sort of what led up to our measures. So for that paper I was referring to, it just came out in, in Journal of Neurology just like a couple of weeks ago. Um, the MS patients had, um, so the activity measures that were different were things like um, gait speed and number of um, steps, strides per boat when they looked at boats. Whereas the Parkinson's patients, the, the top things that were the most different were turn angles were different. So they took a different turn angle across their, their day. Um, and there was more variability in their turning. We found Lori's insights about the differences between home and clinic measures and between patient populations to be fascinating. And we wanted to know more about the specific technology they are using to measure these differences. Yeah, so we in our lab use um, an inertial sensor system called APDM, which stands for, it was originally developed for Parkinson's disease primarily, but we, now we use it across studies. So it stands for Ambulatory Parkinson's Disease Monitoring. Um, and it's a small company out of Portland, Oregon. Um, and Faye Horak actually was one of the developers of the company. And so I guess what's important to consider is that these kind of inertial sensors are really different than um, activity monitors, like, you know, like Fitbit or, what, or just like things that track how active we are. Um, all the kind of common ones that people use, watches and things. Um, because these can give you information on things like turning and the quality of your movement, variability and stuff like that. So you can get a lot more measures about movement quality. And they're pretty easy to get on. Like with our patients, we, we don't have any trouble. We instruct them. It's on a, like a belt around the waist and then two that, with straps that go on the feet. And um, we ask the people to wear them all day. So they get up in the morning, put them on take them off when they go to bed and they dock them in a station and um, charge them up for the next day. And we have people do this for seven days in a row is our typical time period. Based on the data that they have collected, we were curious about the most important variables they were measuring. I think it's really hard to say across populations because every population we keep, when we're studying them, we find to be a little bit different. Um, I would say the one that keeps, I mean, one that keeps sort of rising to the top is turns. Um, whether it's turn duration or peak speed during turning or turn angle or variability of turns. Those seem to be ones that keep sort of rising to the top in the populations that we've looked at. It's, I mean, you can't measure turns with a stopwatch because you don't know when to stop and start them. Um, and now people are starting to try to relate turns to other measures to see if they can correlate. But I, I feel like at this point, it's just like descriptive how you could, when you see someone in the clinic. I mean, there are like, you know, you can do the 360 turn. It's just not very natural. Like you don't really do that in your daily life. Um, I mean, most of our, when you think about our daily walking, most of it is not very, I mean, most of it is not straight ahead. It's like when you think about how you walk around your house or go out to your car, like it's, you're turning literally the whole time. So I don't feel like at this point there's any great clinical way to capture that, though. That's why I feel like this is so important to kind of measure people in their natural environment as much as possible, because we do know that hip fractures, like people fall to the side and 
hip fractures are common with that type of fall. Even in patients with vestibular problems or concussion, I mean, we see abnormal turns in those people as well, which are less, I guess, less obvious than Parkinson's. Because the focus of this podcast is participation, we asked Lori what, if anything, these types of data tell her about a person's participation. Yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah, we, I mean, we always, pretty much across all of our studies, we try to have measures in all three categories. Um, And I would say, yeah, we always do quality of life scales um, and um, balance confidence and things like that. And we've had a couple small studies that did correlate turning performance with quality of life in concussion patients. But we haven't looked at that as extensively, but it's something that we're definitely interested in looking into in most of our studies. And and also it's quality of life. When we look at a lot of our studies with interventions, it doesn't change very easily. Like we can change other measures like gait and balance, like much more easily. Yeah. I think it really is a big kind of gap or disconnect in how we kind of synthesize all of our measures to capture a person and how they're doing. Interestingly, the point of quality of life measures being resistant to change and not a good proxy for participation became a central theme for our conversations with George, Lee, and Lori. But we like the idea of the APDM sensors because they seem easy to use and they seem to give us the kind of information that would be useful for our understanding of our patients' movements. As George and Lee indicated, this kind of data combined with GPS data could provide robust information about participation. We were curious about when Lori thought we might see more of these sensors being used with clinic patients. Here was her response. I think five years. Because the one step that has happened in the last, let's say, maybe one to two years is that more clinical trials are using these. So that's kind of, it has to kind of go through that first before it gets to the clinic. And so more and more, you'll when you're reading the literature, you'll see that a lot of clinical trials are using this kind of outcome measure. You know, it always starts as an idea and then you do it in the lab and then people adopt it for their studies and, and like multi-sites use it so you can compare across sites and then it gets to the clinic, I'd say. So yeah, I, I definitely think it'll get to the clinic because it's becoming cheaper and cheaper and sort of better and better, you know? So yeah, I'd say like, if I had to guess like five years and also like new therapists that are going through PT school are getting this information earlier and it's, it's harder to change people's habits kind of that are older, don't like technology as much and the clinic's busy and that kind of thing. So I I just feel like it's like a slow process, but that it will happen for sure. I mean, every other field, when you think about like cardiology and I mean, there's always objective measures. And so in like neuro rehabilitation, that's not always the case. It's like very descriptive a lot of times. So I feel like we're sort of behind a little bit, even like orthopedics and have a better focus on like objective measures than I think the neuro rehab. Um, But I feel like we're getting there, but it's, it's definitely takes some time, you know. After having these insightful conversations with George, Lee, and Lori, Katie and I took a few minutes to reflect. What they said about more impairment levels or 
activity level measures, I'm just better at them because I've had more time and experience using them and integrating them into the clinic. It's just efficient. And I know the information I'm going to get and how it may influence my plan of care. Mm -hmm. I have to say that it was a bit of a relief to hear that they also agreed that these aren't very sensitive to change, that maybe we shouldn't be expecting these to kind of drive if our intervention is effective. The exciting thing I think about this conversation is that I feel primed. Like I feel like ready for when these sensors and this like GPS stuff comes out. I mean, I know that Lori said five years and, you know, but five years goes by pretty quickly and just having, (laughs) you know, the more people that hear about it and know about it and are kind of, kind of can start thinking that way and, and looking to the horizon, I think, you know, maybe, maybe it'll be four and a half years instead of five years, you know, or three years. So, you know, I, I definitely feel like the conversation was great in, in terms of just getting us ready as clinicians for what's coming. So great job, Katie. It was really fun. This was a lot of fun. I mean, George, Lee, and Lori are fantastic researchers, and they were so much fun to talk to and just very honest about their work and you know, questions that they have and questions that they're going to kind of continue to answer. And it's nice to see that there's a lot of parallels for kind of what we're experiencing in the clinic. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the special edition and we'd love your feedback. Thank you to Dr. George Folk, Dr. Lee Dibble, and Dr. Lori King for this deep dive into participation. This podcast is a production of the Degenerative Disease Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. Thanks to Sarah Crandall for extra support on this podcast. This episode was edited by Katie McGraw and Parm Paget. Music by Jimmy McKay. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend and colleague today. We know you've been waiting for them. Enjoy our bloopers. You know, I'm being interviewed by celebrities here. You know, I feel like it's Terry Gross and Robert Siegel from NPR are grilling me here. So so should I just talk about like what my, I thought my talking points were? Yeah, I could answer that with my talking points. Yeah, well, I mean, I like have a few different sort of talking points that I've kind of sketched out. All right, Katie, we're, that's we got, it. We were done. Like, you already nailed your part, George, George, and you didn't even know you had your one. Part, drop the mic. <laughs> you don't need me. Lee, I'm curious. Why did you say that this that that should not be included? That conversation about the Canadian. Oh, because I, I was just uh, I'm talking about something I don't know anything about. <laughs> I mean, if you wanted to, we do that all the time. That's like all we do. <laughs> okay, well then, include it. Well, um, and so we. Yeah. Yeah. So it does kind of speak to this disconnect, this gap in kind of how we're addressing that. I love to talk over people. For the record, she always talks over people and you were right on something. Can we like rewind? We have to have like a blooper section of your podcast, right? Oh, there's, you should oh, just have a podcast bloopers. of bloopers. bloopers.